0: I'm excited for this year. I don't know about you guys, 2017 is over, 2018 is here, and I'm just thrilled to see what's next. You know, like this past year we had a lot of great things happen, we've had a lot of terrible things happen, but it's in the past, we're alive today, we're heading into a new year, and I think there's a lot of good things in store for us that God wants to show us. So yeah, I'm excited for that. So, in preparation for this new year, I have five... New Year's resolutions that I think most of us will be able to relate to. And I pulled these from online, so I'm going to read them to you guys and see what you guys think. First one's by a guy named Simon Lennon, and he tweeted, I'd love to say New Year, New Me, but I'm only two stamps away from a free meal with my KFC loyalty card. It would be silly to waste that. Adrian Earhart says... In, her, in a tweet, My 2017 resolution is to work on my low self-esteem, but I don't think I can do it. <laughs> Jen Dahl, she tweeted, New Year's resolution. Try to worry less and fill that time with... Oh, God. I'm, what am I supposed to fill that time with? I'm already, this is already going terribly. My goodness. Those who are uh, here with kids and your parents and you got crazy kids, you might be able to relate to these last two tweets. First one says... My new resolution, my children will learn to put their dirty dishes in the dishwasher instead of leaving them on the table, the floor, buried under their laundry, in their rooms, or, my personal favorite, two inches away from their dishwasher on the counter. And then fifth, my children will understand this year that instead of using the excuse, well, I couldn't put my plate in the dishwasher because the dishes were clean, they are to empty the dishwasher and put those dishes away first. Well, I think it's fair to say that this new year makes us think of a couple things maybe a fresh start, maybe new habits, maybe a change in our lives. But have you ever made a new year's resolution and then broke it? I have. For instance, maybe you've made a resolution to eat healthier. But it's cold outside, you're locked in your house, the skies are gray, and it's 4pm because it gets, it gets dark at 4pm, and even though you made a resolution not to eat unhealthy, you end up eating your feelings away. A half gallon of Breyers Snickers ice cream and an Oreo family size package later, and that New, Year's re- that New Year's resolution is starting to look like an abysmal failure. Or instead, you've resolved to get healthier by working out. So you go out and get a membership at the YMCA here in downtown, or maybe over by the Dunnigan on the way to 69. And you get up early, January 2nd, you walk the treadmill, you push some weights around, and you're feeling really good. You're off to a great start, but February rolls around, and your gym ID is nowhere to be found. Has anyone experienced that? What is it about change that is so difficult? Sure, sticking to a new diet and maybe picking up new habits and exercising Those are difficult, but how about the deeper changes in our lives? Like the desire, say, to stop letting people's criticism bother you so much. Maybe you've noticed that you've fallen victim to crediting all of your accomplishments to yourself and blaming everyone else for your failures. And maybe this year now, you want to be honest with yourself and others by overcoming your pride. Or maybe you find yourself being very critical of other people, and now you just want to become a better encourager. Those kinds of deep soul changes are even more difficult than the diets and exercise and discipline that we try to bring upon ourselves, aren't they? C.S. Lewis once said in his book, Mere Christianity, if you don't know C.S. Lewis and you haven't read any of his material, you need to. He's a very He's a fantastic guy brilliant mind, and he says this quote, if you guys uh, would follow along with me. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Here's the question I want to address this morning. Does the gospel have a process that leads to real change? I mean, that is the aim of the gospel, right? That it brings about deep transformation in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus, right? How does the gospel help us change in the process? If you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. We're going to be going through uh, verses 15 through 25. If you're new this morning and you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We will display the passage on the screen behind me, and you can read along with us. Now, as we read this passage, I think many of you will be able to relate with what Paul says. And I, you might even find this passage somewhat humorous, and you'll see why. All right, let's start reading in verse 15. Verse <clears> 15. <throat> Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. How many of you would agree with this writer, Paul, the Apostle Paul, that what he says is true? He might even sound kind of crazy, but he's on to something. What he says here is very profound, and it's also very personal and very emotional. Now, let me give you some context to this passage. Paul has said in the chapter 4, Romans chapter 6, that when we believe in Jesus, we have been released from the power of sin in our lives. We're no longer oppressed by sin. We're freed from the power of sin. This is described, Paul describes it, as putting the old man to death. So the old Eddie has died, the new Eddie is alive. The new Craig, the new Paige, the new Allison, all your names, if you are a believer in Christ, has died, and you are now alive as a new person. Now, some of you may be thinking, I certainly don't feel like I've been freed from the power of sin. I I still keep doing it. Now, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. This is why he says what he says. He's addressing this in this passage today because the reality of our relationship with Christ in sin is very complicated. It's very complicated. Let me describe it this way I despise the Buick Rendezvous. If any of you know what that car is, it is my least favorite vehicle. The Bu- Buick Rendezvous was a, f- a car that my family had for several years and. It just wasn't a good car. I felt like it was cheaply made. I have a high regard for good stereo, and in the rendezvous, it was very poor. That's my taste. The steering wheel was, had a ton of play in it. It, was, it broke down really quickly, and it just looked ugly. I, I never really liked it. And it brought me great joy to hear that in 2007, when Buick had finally made a decision on the vehicle, they discontinued it. And I was like, yes, thank goodness this thing is done with. I won't see it again. Sure enough, next day, I see the vehicle driving on the road. Why not why is it still there? well everyone's still going to be driving the vehicle for the next two decades or so that vehicle might be on the roads although Buick discontinued the model it's still going to be driven it's still got miles there's still cars out there that have to fade out even though the Buick has all even though Buick has already stopped making the vehicles they have not yet stopped showing up on the roads. People will continue to drive them until they fade out so This is the concept that I'm trying to get across. This is the already and not yet. That Christ has already destroyed the power of sin in our lives, but we are not yet freed from it completely in our members. It's not completely removed from us. So we might no longer be the old us, but those old passions still linger inside of us. The book of Romans is a very deep and theological letter And this passage has so much content that I couldn't possibly cover all the things that I would love to cover in this time. So I'm going to narrow down what I think is important and what I want to communicate in three points, three truths that are found in this passage. And they are these. One, first, the tension of change. Second, the need for change. And third, the hope for change. First, the tension of change. Paul says in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Doesn't that just hit home with you? I mean, how many times have we thought that? Have we felt that, where we want to do what is right by others, but or even ourselves, but we fail to do it? Paul has expressed this hatred of sin and desire uh, that he has inside of him, and he he wants to do what is good, but he can't. He wants to follow God's commands, but he can't. And in fact, in verse 22, he even says later that the law of God is what he delights in his inner being. In Paul's other writings, he even expresses a great love for Jesus. What Paul, now let's remember, he is a professing believer in Jesus. He is an apostle of Jesus with great responsibility. What Paul is referring to is his desire to follow the law of God But instead, does the very opposite. Some of you may have grown up in a church that taught that you were supposed to be perfect after you believe in Jesus. That when you believe in Christ, you're actually made perfect. And you're supposed to be able to follow the law perfectly in every way. And if that was you, it probably didn't take you very long to think that either something is seriously wrong with you, or something is seriously wrong with that teaching. Because deep down, you know that you certainly aren't perfect. This type of thinking may have put you in an incredibly stressful place where you've even questioned your own salvation. Will I even see heaven? Will I even make it there? Because I can't seem to get over my sin. I'm not perfect like everyone's telling me that I'm supposed to be. Maybe this even made you behave in a certain way publicly, where you look so good on the outside, but inside you feel like a fraud. Isn't it unfortunate that what you were taught in your church is not that simple. I wish it was, but it's not. Being made like Jesus is a process. Like our New Year's resolutions, we have good intentions and desires to change and be like Jesus, but it's difficult to sustain it, isn't it? So, what do we do? We naturally set up disciplines for ourselves. We do things that create good habits. And those are good. Like, for example, when you conclude a conversation in here with a loved one or a family member, maybe even a close friend, you say, love you, or I love you, before you hang up. Or if you're at a social function at an event, you'll uh, wave bye to everyone and say, hey, I love you guys, see you later. Why do we do this? Perhaps it's something that's been passed down from generation to generation so that no matter what happens between a loved one and us, we have to say, I love you. We leave on a good note. And when we don't say it, let's say because we're mad at that person, it makes you feel bad, you know? But this isn't foolproof. Because I can't say that I love you, or I can say that I love you, but all the while I am building resentment and hatred in my heart towards you. It's not true. Face value, yes. Internally, no. Now listen to me here. The gospel isn't primarily concerned with how we speak dance, if we play cards or watch R-rated movies. Now, those things matter. Those things are important, and we do need to be careful about what our behaviors are. The, The gospel does speak to those things, even. But those are secondary to the gospel. The gospel's primary concern is our heart condition. It's what is in our hearts. So no good habit or discipline that relies on our own human will can possibly make us do what is truly good. And by true good, I mean that you are going out of your way to do something, not out of motivation for yourself, but motivation for the love of Jesus and for the love of someone else other than you. This is the tension of change, this inward struggle. Although we desire godly change in us, we alone cannot bring it about ourselves. So this leads me to my second point, the need for change the need for change. Look again to verse 18. Paul says here, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Our culture and much of the world defines good by doing good things. The amount of good things that you can do and accumulate over your time. You know, the whole karma thing, you have to have your good outweigh your bad. That's normally the mindset of most people, especially in our nation. It's just the sum of walking elderly people across the street or giving to the poor, opening doors for everyone that you come across, you know. I mean, it's true that these things are good, but these things aren't what make a person good. Paul makes a strong argument in another book in the New Testament to show that if anyone was able to argue that they were a good person, it would be him. And he, in this passage, gives this religious resume of all the things that would be really important for a Jew to follow according to God's holy law. And he says some things here that might be confusing to us, but it was very important for them. So for him, he was circumcised on the eighth day when he was born. So when he was born, eight days later, he had to be circumcised. This was a requirement of God's law that you had to do this if you were a Jew. He was also born of a noble family, the tribe of Benjamin. This was a great thing. If someone heard this, they'd be like, oh my goodness, this person's really important. He says that he's even blameless in regard to the law. But even then, he says that all of that, all the things that he has on his religious resume, paled in comparison to the goodness that he has in Christ. On paper, Paul looks like he's the man. But... Inside, he looked nothing like Jesus. Millennials, my generation, we, we generally hang out over here during church service, but they're all away for home because it's Christmas break. My generation, we get made fun of a lot by older generations. And, you know, like, oh, millennials, we need our participation trophies. We're entitled. We feel like we're uh, deserving of everything. We just need to have everything handed to us. Oh, $15 wage minimum. All these things are things that we get. But to be honest, I remember when I was in elementary school, we had this thing called Field Day. Maybe some of you participated in that. Field Day for us was a bunch of athletic activities that you would do generally in the springtime. And you would go outside and do this stuff. And at the end of the day, they would give us a green ribbon that says we all won first place. So yes, you all are right. We have had our participation trophies. But... Funny, the funny thing to me is, is that it was the generations before us that were giving us those ribbons, but I won't get into that. I digress. <clears throat> it is very easy, though, to carry, on, carry this type of thinking into the religious realm, into the religious thinking, and to say that this is how God views us, that we are all winners, no one's a loser, everyone's accepted, we've all tried. This is the mindset that can seep into Christianity. But on the other hand, some of you might have had a different experience. Some of you may have received therapy because in your upbringing, you were never acknowledged for anything good that you did. You were always told how you were lacking, how you were always failing, how maybe you needed to lose more weight. Maybe you uh, didn't get an A on every test and your parents grounded you for it and they made you feel like you were a failure and you weren't going to amount to everything and you got therapy for it. And maybe your therapist told you that you were good. Maybe they told you that you aren't worthless. And Paul wouldn't be undermining any of that. Paul wouldn't be saying that that's wrong necessarily, but he is trying to define good the way that God defines good. An old dead guy named Jonathan Edwards, who is regarded as one of America's most important philosophical theologians, identified two kinds of virtues in the world. In other words, two things that you would do to be good. Two things that you would... uh, Two types of good that you can do and it's these one is common virtue and the second is true virtue Common virtue and true virtue first. I'll describe common virtue common virtue is the good deed that you do primarily for your benefit So this is motivated by fear and pride So let's say Hugh Hefner. He was the founder of Playboy magazine. He passed away not too long ago Donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Peace Corps. Peace Corps does a lot of operations in third world countries to provide water and food and clothing and things that are needed there. What if he donated all this money? That would be a good deed. That would be great. But if he actually did it because he wanted tax breaks or because he wanted good PR, personal relationships with people that use his or participate in his business, would it really be good? It would benefit those at the Peace Corps, yes, and those that they support, but that would only be secondary to his true intent. The real motivation behind his action would be to primarily benefit himself. Here's the problem. Edwards makes the point that we are deepening the roots of sin in our lives when we practice common virtue, because we're operating out of fear and pride. We still make these decisions as though we're the center of our own universe, Now, it's not like giving to the poor isn't a good thing. We need people to support them. Actually, this is a great means of keeping things in check, that we don't go and kill each other and that people go hungry. Like, common good is is a good motivator. Like, I, I can't lie, it does good. But this isn't what Paul is describing in this passage. It's the other type of good that Edwards talks about, which is true virtue. And true virtue is what you do out of love for Christ and love for other people. If you think about it True virtue is actually the antithesis, the opposite of common virtue, because other people do what they do to primarily benefit themselves, where true virtue is to benefit others. Sure, we might benefit from doing a, good de- doing a good deed by participating in true virtue, but it's secondary. It's not the first thing. It's not the first means of why we're doing it. So although we can do what is good by common virtue, it's not godly good found in virtue. true virtue. So this is what Paul means when he's talking about goodness. When he says that there is nothing good in him, he's referring to true virtue. But instead, all he sees is the fleshly, common virtue. In other words, all that good that he does is really for him. That religious resume, it was never for God, it was never for Jesus, it was for himself. Do you feel that way about yourselves? Do you recognize that in your hearts? There's a lot of good things that you do, that I do, but much of that we can do for ourselves. And it is still sin that Paul talks about that prevents him from doing good. Paul sees that there is a war going on inside of him, an internal power struggle between the will of his mind and the will of sin that dwells within him. And out of this frustration, Paul belts out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you feel that way? Have you cried out to God, wretched man that I am? Who will deliver me? I can't possibly do what God commands me to do. I fail every time. Do you feel the crushing weight of shame because you fall short of God's commands? Paul is really self-assessing himself here. And he is ruthlessly honest with himself and wonders if there's even any hope for him. Fortunately, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is his hope for change. Which brings me to my last point, the hope for change. The hope for change. Look at verse 25. Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is relieved that Jesus is his deliverer. The the war that is waging on inside of him that gives him great distress is relieved after recognizing and remembering that Jesus is his deliverer and his perfection. Perfection. Our country and culture might have, in God, we trust on our currency and on our license plates. But it is absolutely not the God that our nation worships. Remember that you are an American. And that likely means that you are probably one of two parties, Republican, Democrat. And you probably participate in uh, some type of social media, whether that be Facebook or Twitter. And let's say you are a Republican. And let's say you have a Twitter or Facebook Who's on your friends list? What do you see on your feed, on your wall? Do you see anything that reflects Democratic material or left-wing agenda? If you're a Democrat, vice versa, do you see anything Republican on your wall or on your feed? Do you all have friends who are willing to challenge you and push back on your worldviews? Or do you just have yourself surrounded by a bunch of people who are tooting the same horn as you and promoting your ideals? most people in our nation surround themselves with others and hope that they tell them exactly what they want to hear i mean it's safe that we want to feel good we want to know we're not wrong if you observe what people talk about on television and movies and our friend circles our coworkers you'll see that there's something else that's front and center for our nation as far as what we believe and that's individualism individualism is the habit of being independent or self-reliant It's the desire for the American dream that has fostered this in our nation. The ability to make something of ourselves is our agenda, is what we live for, to be free, to obtain great wealth, or our plot of land, to start a family, to curtail our lives to our preferences. We're all affected by it. This type of thinking isolates us from God, and it also divides us from other believers. It whispers to us that we need to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. It convinces us that the spotlight is on me, myself, and I. Now, it is necessary to toughen up and be a leader. I'm not saying that's wrong, but leaders, they help others become leaders. They help be a role model for those below them so that they can build up to be themselves good leaders. Individualism, on the other hand, Creates a one man army type of thinking where we want to take the reins of our own life because we're the only ones that could do it right. Because we don't want to be bothered with the burden of someone else messing up. We want to lead our own lives, we want to be on our own throne. This one man army type of thinking comes from individualism, and unfortunately, it seeps into our Christianity, it seeps into our faith. Our pride is appealed by this. It it, it comes alive because of this. It makes us say to others things such as, I just need to figure out how to get over the sin and I'll be good. Or, I feel guilt for my sin, so I can't pray to God because he's mad at me. Maybe if I hold off, he'll show favor upon me. Maybe I can work my way back to him, and then I can pray again. Have any of you thought that or felt that way? This type of thinking is like walking on eggshells. When Jesus tells us to cast our burdens before him, What Paul is really doing in verse 25 is he's repenting. He is confessing how he is a sinner that keeps missing God's mark. He he acknowledges this, but he doesn't end there. He rejoices in the truth that Christ didn't miss the victory. Miss where we failed. He extended the victory that he made to us, that he won at the cross. Paul is demonstrating that all of our lives our repentance. But Paul's example should show us that we need to constantly be acknowledging our sinfulness, that we need to be following that up when we do with praise to Jesus that he is our perfection. Until we see Christ for who he is, we will still struggle with sin. That's inevitable. But by the freedom granted to us by Christ's bondage-breaking power that he achieved at the cross, we are able to worship him freely you don't have to make atonement for your sin anymore you don't have to earn your own merit for God whether you're a Christian or not you must understand that you are only made righteous by putting your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that's it the burden of being good enough isn't on you it's on Jesus. And that should bring you peace. Paul wants us to know that when we believed in Jesus, yes, we are already changed at the moment of salvation. We are a new creation. But the full realization of that change hasn't yet happened. This is the process that won't be completed until we see him. That is the already and not le- not yet So I encourage you guys today, look to Jesus Christ. Let him be your perfection. Live dwelling in his presence, in his goodness. And dethrone yourself from where you sit and let him sit on your soul. If you would, pray with me. Father, we are just so thankful for the grace we have in Jesus. There's nothing more that we should desire, Lord, as we know than to be loved by you, to be cherished by you. Father, I pray that we would find rest in you, that we would see that you sent your son to die for us and that the, the sin we participate in now Yes, it's because of the sin within us. But as we look to you, Lord, you remind us, you give us the ability to have true virtue, to do what is right because we're living for you. We're operating out of a love for you and love for others. I pray that those here in the congregation today would find peace in you, knowing that you are their deliverer, that it's not all on them. We say this in Jesus' name, amen.